The gospel lesson today is from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of oil, of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The reason I was looking up at the screen, so, so I'm reading out of the NRSV, and there's an updated edition. Um, I don't know if the updated edition changed it, but wherever it said dishonest wealth was mammon. So we, we talk about you can't serve God and mammon. Um, it comes from this passage. Which is kind of a strange story, right? It kind of sounds like Jesus is telling everybody to be crooked. Uh, but so that, that's, that can't be right. So uh, let's see if we can make some sense out of it. So there's a new term sweeping the internet and Twitter and TikTok and such. Quiet quitting. According to techtarget.com, quiet quitting doesn't mean an employee has left their job, but rather has limited their tasks to those strictly within their job description to avoid working longer hours. They want to do the bare minimum to get the job done and set clear boundaries to improve work-life balance. These employees are still fulfilling their job duties, but not subscribing to work-is-life culture to guide their career and stand out to their superiors. They stick to what is in their job description, and when they go home, they leave work behind them and focus on non-work duties and activities. So the term and phenomenon are subjects of some controversy. 
right? On the one hand, employers want their employees to be engaged and committed to the success of the company. On the other hand, if they want employees to do more, maybe they should pay them more, right? Basically what I described sounds like having a job, right? So doing the work that you're paid to do shouldn't be considered a form of quitting. The Onion, which is a satire news site, had an article with a bunch of uh, quotes about quiet quitting, including, not me, I take pride in being the most exploitable laborer in my office. In other situations, this phenomenon has been used as a, as a labor action termed working to rule. Instead of going on strike, a union might decide to do things exactly the way the contract is written with no flexibility. The flip side of quiet quitting is quiet firing, where an employee is given unglamorous work or management otherwise makes their job increasingly unpleasant and unrewarding so that the employee will quit. So maybe these terms are new, but the actions are not. For years, probably millennia, people have sometimes insisted on doing no more than what they're paid to do. And employers have responded by rewarding those who are willing to be exploited. There was a time not too long ago when employment was considered a lifelong relationship. For example, my, my father spent his entire engineering career working for Westinghouse. In the steel mills of western Pennsylvania where I grew up, whole generations would work in the same plant, the same steel mill. That's not the world we live in now. People change jobs regularly, either for different opportunities or because their employer makes a change. I mean, Westinghouse doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, it was, it was instead of going bankrupt, it was sold off in pieces. And those, most of those steel mills shut down decades ago. So instead of being a relationship, employment is more of a contractual agree agreement. Employer pays X dollars for employee to do Y, right? This is called the market economy. In the market economy, every good or service has a value, usually a dollar value. People exchange money for goods and services and get essentially what they pay for, no more, no less. Sure, we all like to get more than we pay for or get paid more than something is worth, but in the long run, those marginal differences wash out. The problem is the only relationships people have in a market economy are those that can be monetized. I mean, I don't have a real relationship with the people who work at Walmart or Amazon. I have a financial relationship with Amazon because I subscribe to Prime, but if I discover I'm not receiving enough value for the money, I'll terminate it. No big deal. But we are relational beings. When God created us in their image, they created us to love one another, to see God in one another. That requires us to have actual relationships, not just exchange money. So the next level up from the market economy is sometimes called the gift economy. In a gift economy, I give you something with no expectation of getting anything in return. But we end up with a tiny bit of a relationship out of a sense of obligation. Multiply that 
by a hundred or a thousand and you form this network of mutual obligation. There's no way to account for what anyone owes anyone else, but we all feel this obligation to each other uh, in that network of mutual obligations uh, forms a community. This, I think, is the difference between a contract and a covenant. In a contractual agreement, the two parties agree to exchange certain things of agreed-upon value with some clauses to account for the uncertainties in the future. For example, when I worked for Motorola, we had a contract with Baldor to, to provide a custom component in exchange for money and a few other things. Then Motorola's business changed and they decided not to do this thing. They decided not to supply this component. No problem. The contract had a clause that would govern what happened in that uh, eventuality. And so Motorola said, well, here, here's the money back. Here's these other things. But Baldor did not find those terms to be sufficient. See, Baldor thought that they were entering a relationship a covenant where both parties were committed to helping each other, to supporting each other. But Motorola simply entered a business contract and honored its terms. We don't have a contract with God. The nation of Israel did not have a contract with God. They had a covenant. A cov the terms of a covenant are, are something like it's the terms of a marriage. A covenant is not a 50-50 agreement, but more 100-100, uh, right? Both parties bring their whole selves to the relationship. And that becomes something bigger because of the mutual obligation. The essential narrative of the Old Testament is that first Israel and then later Judah failed to live up to the expectations of the covenant. It wasn't that they violated some contract terms, like they didn't, uh, they didn't sacrifice the right number of goats or bulls or whatever. It was that God expected to be in a relationship with Israel, and the Israelites, Israelites kept turning away. God gave them chance after chance after chance to turn back, to acknowledge that the relationship was important to make an effort to live up to God's expectations, but they failed again and again and again. As Amos said, they turned their backs to the poor and prioritized the market economy over their relationship with God. Finally, God sent Israel and then later Judah into exile. The gifts of, his God, of, the gifts of God to his people were not enough to bind them to him, so the relationship was broken. That might have been the end, but God didn't give up altogether. God kept trying. Throughout the centuries after the exile, the Israelites tried to rebuild their relationship with God. But in the end, it's impossible for humans to ever heal what has been broken. But with God, all things are possible. We live in a market economy because we are modern Americans. We live in a gift economy because we're members of a community, whether that community is Rolla or Missouri S&T or the Lions Club or whatever organization we feel a commitment to. 
we give ourselves to our chosen community and form a network of mutual obligations with them. But Jesus came to teach us about something even better, the grace economy. So how do we earn God's grace? Well, it's a trick question. We cannot earn God's grace. It is freely given to us by God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is a gift of infinite value that God has chosen to give us, each one of us individually and all of us collectively. God's grace cannot be bought and sold. It is both precious beyond words and abundant beyond our imagining. The grace economy is like the gift economy, except that the source is from God. God has showered grace upon us, an overflowing love, and all she asks is that we share that grace with others who need it, which is everyone, and who God believes is worthy of it, which again is everyone. The grace showered upon us is not ours to keep, but to give. We ask God to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. We treat people who make mistakes the way we would want God to treat us when we make mistakes. We are forgiven, and in return, we forgive others. We are loved, and in return, we love others. What makes, grace, what makes the grace economy different is that grace is not a finite resource. In the market economy, if I give you, say, a dollar in exchange for a book, right? then at, afterwards, I'll have less money, you'll have more money, I'll have more books, you'll have fewer books. It's a zero-sum situation. It occurred to me this morning that, that the way we think about justice in, in America is similar, right? If, if someone breaks a law, then there's a debt that they've incurred to society that they have to uh, make up. There's some value that we've ascribed to that, that transgression, and they have to pay that debt uh, in order to get back even, right? It's some, there's some total value that the, that the community has that they have to make up somehow, right? It's, it's still a zero-sum situation. In the gift economy, our network of mutual obligations is limited by the time, energy, and other resources within the community. We see that sometimes in small organizations where there's only so much the organization can accomplish because the people who give of themselves have only so much to give. But in the grace economy, when we share God's love with others, we receive more love in return. God's love is an infinite resource, and God's realm is an open-sum situation. There will always be more love to give more forgiveness to give, more hope to give, because our source is God. Unlike our um, American concept of justice, God's justice is supplemented by mercy. In the Gospel of John, in Jesus' farewell discourse after instituting communion, Jesus said, I am the true vine, 
and my Father is the vine grower. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. So what is this fruit that the branches bear? It is the grace of God, the faith, hope, and love of God, the mercy and forgiveness of God that we share with others. If we rely only on our own resources and our own selves, we are living in the market economy or the gift economy and are governed by scarcity. If instead we rely on God, if we abide in Christ as he abides in us, we can live in the grace economy and be governed by the abundance of God's eternal realm. Now, I'm an engineer, which means that I'm a pragmatist. I recognize that we all have limited time, energy, and resources. I know that we live in a market economy and rely on it for our food, shelter, transportation, and so much more. The shrewd, dishonest manager also lived in a market economy. He was about to be thrown out of his job and decided to make use of someone else's resources to provide for himself. He used his master's wealth to build relationships with the master's debtors. But how long do you think those relationships would last? Take the man whose debt was 100 jugs of olive oil, but the manager made it 50. Well, how much is 50 jugs of olive oil worth? I don't know, but I'm guessing that the guy whose debt was forgiven knows exactly how much it's worth and would give exactly that much support to this uh, dishonest manager. And then what? Well, then there's the guy who owed uh, 100 containers of wheat and uh, the manager made it 80. So 20 containers of wheat, that guy knows how much that's worth and would give him that much support. Eventually, that would run out, right? And then, if he didn't have a ready source of income, he would still end up a beggar. We too need to have a source of income to live in this world. But, but, we have an infinite supply of grace that will sustain us in the world to come. The promise of the gospel is that we can live in God's realm now, not later. This world is being transformed through Christ. It's an already but not yet fulfilled promise. God's realm hasn't come into full fruition, but it's already available to us. We have available to us an infinite source of grace, of love, of faith, of hope, of mercy, and of forgiveness. We can tap into that wellspring of love if we are willing to be conduits for it, sharing it with all of God's people to bring them all into God's eternal realm now growing the grace economy until it transforms this broken world, one person, one relationship, and one community at a time. Amen.